Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat or for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there, and he entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The word of the Lord. Morning. If uh, if you were not here last week, Bob Klima spoke on what you learn in trials. And as a trial attorney, uh, I was I just gained so much from that. It'll be up. I don't think it's up on the website yet, but it will be. I would encourage if you weren't here, it's well worth your time. Thought it was just a really insightful word. So, thank you, Bob, for that. And um, I'd also would just ask your prayers. You know, we're in the we're built we're building hope and we're in the process of of getting uh, the building process going on our land and they had the first meeting with what we call the design review team about 10 people representative of the congregation to sit down with the architect and begin to go through so please pray for them because we're trying to hear through them representative of our body of how we see this project coming together so i would appreciate your prayers for them as well we are about halfway through the book of Matthew. So uh, if you've been with us over the last couple of months, we've been making our way through this book. So let me just back up about three steps and get us a running start. We are, the book of Matthew is looking at this new, this king that has arrived on the scene, bringing word of this new kingdom that's arrived and everything's changed. And Matthew is doing his utmost to try to connect the Old Testament and this coming Messiah to say, this is him, guys. You got him. This this is the one. So this is why Matthew continues to pull from the Old Testament and says, this is what was predicted by the prophet Isaiah or by uh, this word. This is the fulfillment of what Mo- who Moses was and who Abraham was. And John the Baptist carried the spirit of Elijah. And this is one story. And 
Now the king is here and everything is changing. And so we've seen Jesus teach on the kingdom at the Sermon on the Mount. Then we see him demonstrating, this is what it's like to live in God's kingdom. I am a representation of what God is like. Look at what I do. Look at the kind of things that are coming out of my mouth. Look at the kind of things that are happening when the king arrives. And so this has been uh, being thrown at us with story after story in the teachings. And, and so as we come up now to, to this engagement with the Pharisees, we, I want to back up one step and give you uh, something you need to know as you're reading through the book of Matthew, is that there are three distinct groups that Jesus tends to speak to. First is disciples, and those are the, those are the people that say, yeah, I believe. He's the Messiah. I agree with you. And Jesus speaks certain words to those groups. Then he speaks to what they call the crowd. And you'll see in Matthew, the crowd does this. And the crowd are those who haven't yet decided. They're the ones who say, well, maybe. I, I kind of think it's interesting what he's doing. I like the... Um, the miracles or all that, but, but I'm not sure. I haven't committed to following him, but, and you'll, you'll see when he deals with the crowd, a lot of what he, Jesus says is, this is how you enter the kingdom. And then there's this third group. So we have the first group is he is the Messiah. The second group is, is he the Messiah? And the third group is, no way he's not the Messiah. They've decided, right? And that's, they, we, we use the term Pharisees and Sadducees, but it's the religious community there. They had decided. And so this passage in Matthew 12, and there's other passages as well in all the gospels where he deals with this, but these are representative of people who have already made the decision that he's not who he says he is. So let's, let's jump back just a little bit because I think sometimes for us, Pharisees just becomes a word for, it's just a legalist, just somebody who's, I don't know what you think of when the word Pharisee comes to your mind, but let's just look at what, who they were a little bit. When we, we jump back into the time when uh, Israel, about 586, went into exile, that one of the things that happened is that they had lost a sense of being God's people. They had lost God's word as the primary guide. They, they were, this is part of the reason God allowed the exile to occur. And so as they came back out of the exile, and we have books like Nehemiah and Ezra that, that chronicle how the miraculous nature that God released these people back, one of the things that they tried to come to was, we don't want to go through that again. We want to remember, and if you remember in the book of Ezra, they found the scroll, and they began to read again God's word, and they lost it. And they were like, wow, and probably they were reading the Torah, the books of Moses, like we had forgotten what the word said. And so they were beginning to, God was beginning to say, I've been faithful to you this whole time. I haven't forgotten, but you need to regain an identity of who you are as a people. And so the the things that God had had against them, their idolatry, they really tried to take seriously. And they really began to try to take, okay, what does God's word say? Let's not go through that again. And so, of course, there were people saying, well, this is what how we should interpret God's word. And as these uh, several hundred years, the, the intertestamental period, between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, about 400 years, there was a lot of happening. It wasn't there was nothing happening, but this group of Pharisees rose up during that time. It's the time of the Maccabees in about the second century BC. And they said, look, we need to take God's word really seriously. 
So when we, for our ears in 2019, listening to a, a thing on the Sabbath, that first story that, uh, that Bill read to us this morning, it sounds strange to our ears because it says the, the disciples were walking through the grain fields and plucking off the heads of grain and eating. I think for us, it would bother us that they were trespassing, you know, like it wasn't their field. Like in really in 2019, that's the thing that would have bothered us. Did you notice that didn't bother the Pharisees at all? It was when were they doing it? The Sabbath. They were breaking the law of Moses. They were breaking Torah by doing that because the, uh, the, the law states that any Israelite was allowed or even a foreigner living there was allowed to not go hungry and fill their belly on extra grain, whether it was gleaning or stuff. Now there was a certain prescribed, you don't go and, you know, plow someone else's field or take everything. But if you're hungry, you can go and eat. So that was there. But there was also regulation given as to the Sabbath. And it's a pretty wide regulation, which is you shall work six days. And on the seventh day, you shall rest. Everybody in the land shall rest. There's a little more given than that, but not a whole bunch. Okay, When you look at it, there's a, a, a few more restrictions, but not a lot. So then, of course, the question comes, what counts as work? All right? I'm working today. Right? Have you ever read that? This is exactly what Jesus is addressing in the beginning. If you got your Bible, look at Matthew 12, what we read. And I'll, I'll read you. Maybe this verse, you don't know what this means or whatever, but it's, it's, it's almost, ex- not exactly, but it's, it's kind of like what we're dealing with here, which is, it says in verse 5, Jesus responding to the criticism says, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Hold on. So when I think of profane, I think of profanity. So like, so were they swearing in the temple? Like, were they doing something wrong? No. When, when Jesus is saying, guys, they're working on the Sabbath. They're offering sacrifices. They're doing what the law commands. This is their work, and they're working on the Sabbath, but they're not condemned for it. Jesus then responds, he says, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry? He, on the Sabbath, they went through the fields and ate with their men, and they weren't judged for that. Jesus is simply responding to the laws, says, here's what had happened. And this happens to all of us, is that we start with one principle. We start with this principle of six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you will rest. What is work and what is rest? What counts? Ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? Okay, remember that movie? Remember the line from there? It's not right to play football. I can't do Scottish accent, but it's not right to play football on the Sabbath. Right? It's, why not? Does the Bible not say that? Well, in, in the Scottish custom, from where Eric Little was, they didn't do that kind of recreation was not appropriate on the Sabbath. That's the way they interpreted it. For if you look now, at the the Sabbath laws, it's called the Midrash, and it's basically this group of, of uh, rabbi scholars or sort of two main camps of scholars who said, what is work and what is rest? And there are 39 specific rules with each one has dozens of sub-rules. If you go to Israel today, there are Sabbath elevators, and we were there, and you don't press as a Jew, one of the rules is no pressing of buttons. So on the Sabbath, a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, rides a Sabbath elevator where he stops at every floor 
because no buttons are pressed. And it's automatically programmed into the culture. Now, we look at that and say, well, it's ridiculous. They look at it and say, well, I'm honoring God's word. Right? This is where the Pharisees come from. We, we sometimes, I think, think of them as people who um, they, they just sort of hated God and his word. And in one sense, there is some truth in that. But in another sense, it was because they took God's word so seriously that they got into trouble. And the reason they got into trouble wasn't that they took the word seriously, and it wasn't even that some of the rules became minutely picky. That wasn't the problem. The problem is the minor thing had become the main thing. And Jesus responds directly to them, and he says this. Look at verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Why would he say that? Because in the temple, the the place where the priests dwell, the place where the sacrifice happens. This is the place that embodies for them all that the law points to. And he says, what you've missed is the presence of God is in your midst. And you don't see it. Then in the next verse in 7, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Was Jesus and his followers were guiltless in what they had done, but they had condemned. And then he makes this statement in eight, for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The crux of the matter is this. They'd made up their minds about right and wrong, and it hadn't gone through the person of Jesus. And so the written word, God's word, apart from the living word, becomes a tool of death. God's word embodied by and processed through the living word becomes the word of life. I, all I can say is who has ears to hear, let them hear. Because when you see that, you think, well, how do I know if I'm processing it through Jesus? Because if you begin to read this word and write it on stone rather than on your heart and say, well, I'm going to follow these outward rules because religion wants us to follow outward rules. And if we follow the rule, God is pleased with us. And that's what the Pharisees had taken to the nth degree. If I follow the rules, God is happy with me. He says, no, the, the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made to reveal to us the heart of God, not a series of laws to obey. And I think we have to be careful before we criticize the Pharisees and stand back and say, well, I, I mean, I, I do it perfectly. Jesus didn't throw out the Sabbath. Jesus didn't, didn't argue and say, oh, there's no Sabbath anymore. He said, you've just lost sight of the main thing by making the little things the main thing. There's only one main thing to be a main thing, right? There's only one main course in a meal. And Jesus says, it's me. When you come, if, if you come to Jesus or don't come to Jesus with your mind already made up, then don't bother digging down into the details and minutia because it just is a, it's a Pharisee machine. And when we make up our minds about this and that and we don't come with God's word written, God's word living together and helping us to interpret correctly and accurately the heart of God and obedience to God, that we can begin to go down exactly the same path. 
Look with me at the second story because this, I think Matthew is trying to get us to see where this leads to. He went on from there, and this this story may or may not happen sequentially to the first story about the the criticism around the fields of grain, but it's a uh, he uses this uh, literary device to sort of say, and also, and attached to this, hear this story. He entered a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him?" Because now. Here's how the law goes. If you looked at the 39 laws in the Mishnah, what you'll find is, is that you may heal someone. I mean, healing itself is just amazing, right? But the law was you can pray for healing if it's life-threatening. And they define life-threatening very specifically. Just go and look at the rules of Sabbath. It's amazing how specific it is. But if it's not life-threatening, and you can definitely know they're going to live tomorrow, you don't pray for healing for them or try to help them until the next day. Again, strikes us as odd, but this is what happens when we move the main thing out of the main place. So, they were trying to trap him. We know that this is, they were, it says in verse 10, they were looking away that they might accuse him. And he says, which one of you as a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. Verse 14 is one of the saddest verses to me in all of Scripture. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Here's why is that Jesus saw a man in need, and they saw a law broken. There's no indication the Pharisees ever saw the man. And one of the ways we know that we're beginning to develop that pharisaical tendency is when we don't see hurting people, we don't see how God restores, we begin to see the violation of rules. Now, Does that mean we throw out all the rules? Absolutely not. But they had added to God's word. They had taken Jesus out of the equation. And Jesus says, I'm going to show you how to apply the law. Jesus was showing them what to do. He says, there's not a jot or tittle of the law that's going to pass away. Uh, But you have to process it through me. You can't do it apart from me. So when we ask questions about, okay, Lord, so so how do I do this? How do I work? We first go, Jesus, what did your life look like? Lord, what are your priorities? Where are you in this equation? And it doesn't eliminate all the questions. There are things we all decide. I don't take my Sabbath on Sunday, but I have a Sabbath. And I'm not pro, you know, you could say, well, isn't everybody's Sabbath supposed to be on a Sunday? Well, for me, I work on Sundays. I, I have another job after this. I actually go and work. No, not really. This is my job, but I work. Right. And so for me, I just tell you personally, it doesn't make sense. I know for some people, Sunday is a Sabbath day of rest for them. And, and some people think that should be the only day. Some people, Saturday is the Sabbath. And again, good discussions to have. But I process this with Jesus through my faith, through our faith, to say Sabbath was made for man. It was made for my restoration to to rekindle my love for God and to get away from the distractions and all the things that I think Sabbath was made to bring us as a rest. But I don't want to dig down into the minutia of Sabbath. That's a, it's a whole different issue. 
The question is this, is that as we look to obey, are we taking Jesus with us or are we comfortable just looking at, at we, it, rules are easy to follow. Dances can be hard to dance. Here's what I mean by that is that any of y'all, you know, try to dance. And if, if you say, remember that I was Arthur Murray or one of those where they put the, the footprints on the floor, you know, and you kind of do this, right? You pour and now you're cha-cha-chaing and you're not, you look ridiculous. You know what I'm talking about? It says that's the law defined is that, okay, well, if I tithe that amount and I have my quiet time for 10 minutes on this morning, and if I go to church at least three out of four Sundays a month, I mean, God understands, right? And if I, and if I, you know, don't watch, um, you know, Law and Order, uh, you know, it's SVU because that's bad, but I do why I can watch the other Law and Order because that's not so bad. You know what I'm saying? You begin to train your life by, well, well, this is a, this is a rule that's okay. This is a rule that's not. And I think God's pleased with me. And you know what it's like to, to be dancing or watch a couple dancing that are just fluidly in motion. They're not worried about where their feet are stepping. They understand. And we need to be so in the arms of, of our Savior and dancing with him that these questions are just flow because we're in relationship with someone who can say, Lord, is this pleasing? Is this blessing to you? Is this glorifying to you? Is, is what I'm doing? It's all yours, Lord. You're, you're in control of my life. What do you want me to, how do you want me to spend my time? What do you want me to get? How do I live? That's actually harder than putting foot on, feet on the floor because you're not sure how to do it and you stumble and you step on toes sometimes and you learn how to be in relationship. And this is what Jesus is trying to, to communicate is I want you to be in relationship with me. And all these questions, I will teach you. I will show you. That's why the Holy Spirit is there. He says, the Holy Spirit's going to guide you. Everything I've taught you, the Holy Spirit's going to bring to your remembrance and help you apply it. And I know it sounds a little fuzzy and it's a little harder than, well, just tell me what to do. Just give me rules to follow, right? Wouldn't it be so much nicer if you knew if you spent 10 minutes praying in the morning, God would be happy with you and nine minutes he wouldn't be? It'd be so easy because then I just do 10 minutes, right? But that's not how, that doesn't bring fulfillment. That doesn't bring life. That brings death. Jesus doesn't answer questions where people don't want answers. He asks other questions and he says stuff that confuses them to no end. And he makes comments about things. And this is what he begins to do because the Pharisees don't want to know. They've already made up their mind. They're looking how to kill him, right? At the end of that second story, they went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They continue on, though. We have more stories coming of they come back and say um, in verse 38, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Really? You're, you've just said you're conspiring to destroy him. Why do you want to see a sign? See, it's the only sign you're going to see is the sign of Jonah. Three days dead and somebody comes out alive. And they're like, what? And he, exactly. You have no idea what I'm talking about. They say again, he, he heals in verse 22, a demon oppressed man who was blind versus chapter 12, verse 22, a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he, and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And I'm sure he also delivered him at the same time from his 
demonic oppression. I mean, that's sort of implicit in that. And all the people were amazed. The crowd is amazed. What do the Pharisees say? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's by the devil. It's by the prince of demons that he cast this man out. What? When you've already made up your mind, one thing, it doesn't matter what you do. When you've demonized someone, in this, in this sense, literally, it doesn't matter what they do. You always see that it's wrong. And they had totally lost sight. They didn't see a man freed and healed. They didn't see a person not under demonic possession. They saw a demoniac helping another demoniac to fool them. Their hearts were blind. Everything that had happened, every miracle Jesus did, everything he taught, became for them just another nail in his coffin or a nail on a tree. You know what a red herring is, right? Something gets you off the track. You know where the, ver- you know where the etymology of that is from? Ever thought about that? There's no such thing as a red herring, by the way. Herrings are not red. But if you smoke a red herring, put it in brine, either briny or you heat it up a little bit, it kind of, the flesh turns a little red and it, it's, herrings already smells a lot. And that'll really bring out the smell of it. And what they would do is, a couple hundred years ago, they would want the hounds to get off the scent. So they would take that herring and they would put it in brine or they would smoke it a little bit, make it turn the flesh a little red and make the smell go crazy. And when they wanted to get away from the hounds, they'd throw it on the trail and then the hounds would get totally confused when the red herring came along. And so that's become that. That was free. You didn't have to pay any extra for that knowledge of trivia. <laughs> I, I say that because of this, is that we can we can do the same thing in so much of our Christianity. We can make red herrings out of issues that divide us as the people of God. There are issues that are very important. There are issues that go to the core of who we are, and they're worth disagreeing over civilly. They're worth becoming essentials of our faith. But there are issues over which we throw out that my way is the right way, and how I see it, and anyone who doesn't believe like I do is is... Maybe not a heretic, but they're, they're, cl- they're darn close. And I think the Pharisees had gone to the utmost degree and said, there is no Savior, Messiah, this Jesus is no one. And this is why, and we're going to pick this up next week, it's very important because this issue comes up. We talk about what does it mean, the unforgivable sin. And they were committing it in blaspheming the Holy Spirit, attributing to Jesus the work of the enemy because there is no salvation. There's no help outside Jesus, ultimately. Ultimately, we're lost without him. And everything else becomes a red herring when we begin to dig down. And even as Christians, we begin to say, well, if you take a stand on this or that, Jesus says, wait. How about letting me get in the dance with you? And how about letting me help determine these things that are of lesser importance? One of the things I appreciate about the denomination we're a part of, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, is they've they've made these essentials. And the tent isn't big enough for all opinions on all subjects. There's exclusivity in, in Christ and in his word and, and in what's derived from that. But what we say is in, in those essentials, there's got to be unity to be part of the tent. You're welcome here, but but 
Christianity is an exclusive religion. It just is. Jesus didn't make any bones about it. But in non-essentials, there's liberty. And how we determine that and how we get there is a dance we do. But to to do that, and, and, and in any event, we're, we have charity and all things charity. Because even if we disagree with someone, there's no reason to be anything but charitable. As we look at the Pharisees and their reaction, I, I pray that we would look and, and we would rightly condemn what they did and we would not step in their path. For the crowds that were watching and amazed but kept their distance, I pray that's not us. I pray that we are disciples, that we're all in, that we've, we, we believe and we practice that belief and we've, we're going to allow the written word, the living word, to teach us how to walk in his ways, how to be a light to our path, how to do that. I know in my heart it's it's really easy for me to become a Pharisee because I, I'm, I think I'm right. I don't hold any opinions that I think I'm wrong about. I don't, not a one. You don't either, I hope. I guarantee you if we all sat down in a room and I asked you what you thought on 10 different subjects, it's quite unlikely that all of us would agree on all, especially the lesser subjects, and I could name them off, the things that Christians tend to see differently on. Not talking about whether Jesus is Son of God or His Word is inspired. But I would caution us to not go down the track of the Pharisees and to make the hors d'oeuvres and the dessert Good things, not unimportant things, but not the main course. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified, his word true and living and lasting forever. Sets our course, sets our lives. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, teach us what's of ultimate importance. Teach us to walk together in areas where we might see things differently. Teach us not to codify, to make absolute, Lord, and to add to your word in ways that's inappropriate. Help us to be people who who hold to your word and cling to your word completely and utterly, and your word alone, in Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, Lord, that we don't add anything to you being all-sufficient, We thank you for saving us, for reaching down, making yourself known to us. Lord, help us not to think ourselves so wise that we have all the answers, but to point ourselves and orient ourselves so that you, who do carry every answer, who would teach us of your truth, who would lead us in your way as we walk together, would do so in the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we close?